HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Southern Peanut Growers, committed to making sustainable more attainable for chefs and cooking enthusiasts worldwide. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This is Gastronomica heritage radio network podcast i'm your host for today dan bender this episode is produced in collaboration with gastronomica the journal for food studies our summer 2022 issue now available online explores the themes of borders and boundaries featuring featuring articles on migrant experiences food imaginaries and practices of provisioning through food rearing and preservation Join us over the next couple of weeks as we talk to authors and subscribe to the Gastronomica podcast feed on your favorite platform to stay updated on our newest episodes. Our guest this week is Jason Edward Pagaduan. Jason is an Iloquano doctoral candidate in sociology at the University of Toronto, where I also teach. Their research interests are organized around health, the well-being of older adults, consumption and consumer culture, and feminist epistemology. Thank you for joining us, Jason, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So your piece is a beautiful and moving reflection. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, And it looks at the relationships formed through a mall walker's community here in Toronto. Somewhere between the mall strolls and the conversation that followed in fast food places, Jason, you realize that what fried is gold, the title of your essay. Jason, many of us spent the COVID pandemic thus far, quarantined, isolated, and Zooming. You spent much of it walking. Tell us how. So, thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, We stayed exercising. So this Mall Walkers Club has been meeting for over 20 years now. And 
um, like three times a week, they would go into the mall and exercise from about 7 a.m. to about uh, 9 a.m. where uh, like stores start to open so they can't be exercising anymore. Um, and so I was luckily able to join them before COVID really shut everything down because I think one of the first things that happened in March during the lockdowns was that malls were actually closed. And so we had to pivot over to Zoom. And so we we were doing a lot of exercises over Zoom, but couldn't really resume to go to the mall. I know when the lockdown closed, some people were still going to the mall by themselves, but the Mall Walkers Club was not meeting in an official capacity um, just because they wanted to keep each other safe. So we were still able to exercise, so that was the good news, but it kind of highlighted the... Um, sort of digital divide that was going on because not everybody was able to join um, either because of comfort with technology or just having access to digital technologies that allowed people to keep exercising. And there's something about exercise on Zoom, which I really haven't done, which is very different from exercising with others, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. So you, you're saying you've never really done. Well, an never, well, I mean, I do exercise, but not on zoom. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. Um, because there's a lot of dif- technical difficulties and it's, it, you know, and the mall walkers club, they operate, um, they're, it's like they're run by older adults. So there's no hired instructors to, to, to lead the classes. And so it's for older adults, by older adults. And that kind of makes things interesting because you kind of have to learn how to use the platforms, first of all, um, and being able to navigate technical difficulties, being able to share sounds um, and uh, make sure that your voice is loud enough over the music. So there was a lot of things to navigate and a lot of barriers, but they were able to do it and they did it for a couple of years. So it's, it's pretty impressive just to see. um, Were you drawn to the study of mall walking before the pandemic or is this something that they, the realization was so important during COVID? Like take us through the chronology here for you. Yeah. um, So it was a couple of years ago, I'd say around 2019 and you know it's funny like mcdonald's plays a huge role in this like i think i was either writing or studying for my second comprehensive phd exam and i wanted to get mcdonald's for breakfast and they had to shut down because they had no power and so i was walking around this mall waiting for them to get their power back because i wanted breakfast and i saw a group of older adults just walking in t-shirts Um, And the t-shirts say Mall Walkers Club on them. And so I was kind of interested. So I kind of followed them around the mall until I saw that like most people were sitting in the food court and um, people were dancing and doing aerobics around like one of those old CD players just uh, blaring out into the food court. And so I kind of just sat there and, and watched and just because it piqued my curiosity so much. So, um, yeah, after they exercised and they did their um, announcements, I kind of uh, walked up to one of the organizers or who I thought was an organizer and just started asking them about what they were doing, what they were about. Um, And that was a really interesting um, experience. And somewhere along the way realized you had an amazing dissertation? (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Like, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people don't really know what they're doing for the dissertation. You have a topic, you have a very abstract topic, right? And but you don't know what it's going to be grounded in, whether it's going to be a case study or a historical study. Um, and so at the time, yeah, I was reading a lot of feminist epistemologies. I was reading about community, reading a lot of ethnography. And I thought to myself, this could actually be a really interesting dissertation project. You know, it's fascinating because like many Torontonians of, of my generation, I really don't spend very much time in malls. I might dash in for something and dash out again. <laughs> so for my under 50 set, malls seem like the vestiges of, of past or maybe even dying consumer cultures. But when Absolutely. I read your piece, I realized that, that perhaps they play a very different role. Health, caring, community for older adults, particularly for migrants. Tell me what I'm missing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's weird. I think we grow up to the mall, I say, maybe is the question. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think there's a certain part in growing up where you start thinking you're too cool for malls. Like, first of all, you know, like, I mean, being a teenager, that was the thing to do. Um, And for a while, like, um, that's what I did. You know, after high school, we would just mall rat is what we called it. And we'd go to the malls. I think there's a certain point when you grow up and you think you're kind of too cool for a mall or malls are just kitschy, you know, like the stores there are just not actually cool anymore. But I think that what that does is that it carves out a space for certain people to, to use it in, in, in a less consumer way, consumer culture way, and more in a healthcare community way, which is why I'm so fascinated by it, right? Because we're so quick to judge capitalism for sort of individualizing everything and making uh, hyper individualizing um, just our lives. And so um, I think there's something to be said about using a consumer space in a non-consumer way. So do you think do you think it's the absence of community centers that turn malls into that or is it something about the mall itself and in particular its food court that actually makes maybe for a more appealing community center than the community centers that we actually have Um that's a really good question Dan um I I think that um community centers are still really uh, important for the community. I think uh, places like churches and senior centers are important for the community. I, th- But what I also think is that people ca- have the power to be self-autonomous, right? Like, um, or people should have their own spaces to um, organize on their own and without like the use of um uh like government support or anything like people being able to organize on their own like self-organizing communities are also really important because you can practice sovereignty and you can practice control over your own bodies and how how they're laid right so rather than going to a place where there's instructors that may or may not always take into account that People have different physical abilities. Um, having spaces where older adults can organize and lead other older adults um, can be more relatable and more suited to their physical capabilities. And it is interesting that when you first noted the mall walkers 
while waiting for your McDonald's breakfast, you also were looking for the structure, right? You, you noted that you were looking for the leader. Yeah, um, I just wanted to know who I thought it was actually very self-organized. Yeah, yeah. So can we walk over to the mall food court for a while? As I think about the the mall nearest my house where I have dashed in perhaps for the, you know, the the odd something from the food hardware store or the driver's license office, the food court there is a really complex place. And I think this is the case for many malls here in in a city like Toronto, a, a migrant city like Toronto. It's a mix of some of the big international fast food outlets and some smaller independent places serving foods relevant to nearby communities. So is there something, tell me, tell us about the food cultures of Toronto's malls and how that plays a role in your story. Yeah, you know, and this is another great question that I, I don't really think about because when they're working out in the food court, none of the restaurants are even open. Right? The only thing that's open is a McDonald's, but that's not actually directly located in the food court. I think structurally what's important about using the food court is that it provides a kind of a big open space together where you can sit, lay down your stuff while you walk around the mall. Um, because keep in mind, the mall is actually closed. So like none of the stores are open, but the security and mall management allow the um, the mall walkers to come in and just use the space before anything opens. That way they don't interfere with shopping. And so the food court just acts as a natural gathering space for people and one in which people can kind of like hold on to the tables and chairs Um, if they need assistance while they're doing aerobics in the food court. And so that's also really interesting. And, um, you know, during Christmas and Easter, like there'll be events where they'll just lay out a bunch of food and have like a little potluck um, and people just sit together and eat together. And um, it's really um, fun to be a part of. There's some solidarities there that, that I want to talk and and explore, but I want to, examine or ask about first of all your relationships with this group of mall walkers and you you write about being accepted but not really about being it didn't seem that your acceptance was about that they accepted that you were writing a dissertation about them you simply wrote that you were accepted as really as part of that group can you tell us about that process of acceptance both as a scholar and as an exerciser yeah, I think a a part of it was they were happy that somebody because the the Mall Walkers Club isn't like there's no age range to be a part of it, right? It's it's obviously implicit that most of the people there are retired and looking for community. Um so most of them are, you know, I think the youngest person I met was 67. Um most people are in their 70s. Um, but they don't have a restriction on who's allowed to join. And so a person from the community, because I'm, I'm from that community in the, the, the neighborhood that um, that they exercise in. And it, it's funny because they were able to tell right away um, because one person asked like, hey, you're Filipino. And I was like, 
yeah. And then another person's like, no, this person's not Filipino. He's from so-and-so neighborhood um, because they could tell them that the way I was speaking and the way I was acting, maybe that they were, they, they can tell I was from the neighborhood. And so that was one way to show that like, oh, they know where I'm from and they accept me. Um, and another was just to just be part of things, you know, not to try to um, interject and ask too many questions, but to be part of the everyday culture of it. And so I would show up, I would actually exercise in the food court, I would walk around in the malls, eventually, I was invited to go and hang out with the McDonald's uh, uh, crew, like, um, like one of the tables there, where we always sat. Um, it takes a while, like rapport building. Um, and I the whole time I wasn't really thinking like, yes, I'm an ethnographer and I'm doing a dissertation, but more, I really just want to be a part of this community and get to know people. Um, I think, um, you know, one of the great ethnographers, in my opinion, like Rando Contreras uh, taught me, like no one wants to hang out with somebody that's boring or dull. Like if you want to really be an ethnographer, you kind of need to, to learn how to be friends with people. And yeah. So the so your time with the group would be you would wake up early who says that being an academic is is easy and you would <laughs> join the the mall walkers you said before the stores even opened and then you would end up at at um at McDonald's there so there'd be some exercising some walking chatting and then McDonald's did you ever do do the do they gather outside of the mall or is this really a community circumscribed by the space of the mall? Uh, no, there was a lot of gatherings outside of the mall. Um, again, I I wasn't there for like years. I must have been there for just about a year until pandemic really closed everything. Um, but they would organize banquets, like mall walkers banquets um, at event halls. We would have picnics in local parks. We would gather at each other's houses over, again, what like food. Most of the time when we gathered, it was about food, you know, whether it's the banquet, picnic, or each other's houses. Um, a lot of it had to do with, um, I guess, feeding one another. Yeah, there's something, there's a connection on that. I'm challenging you to, to, to tease out this connection for us. There's a connection between exercise and, um, and food that is really fascinating. Maybe you could mm -hmm. tease that, that connection out. That was the exercise, the role for the food or, or did they, there's a, they seem to fit together chronologically, culturally, politically in fascinating ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's a that's a good question. I wonder what you think about it while I try to figure it out on my own. Well, maybe one way to, to dive into it is your description of the smells that you recalled. I'm always somebody who's really interested in smells and their role in really in analysis and, and in memory. And when you sat down to write this essay, you your description of the smells is incredibly evocative. Maybe that's a way in. Can you share why those smells, the smells of the frying fat, of the, the frying hash browns, of the McDonald's breakfast, of the mall itself is a fascinating smellscape. Why did 
why why did those stick so so clearly in your memory um I think a lot of it was I was really hungry. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, you know, you wake up in the morning, the first thing you have to do is exercise and you haven't really even eaten yet. <laughs> like, um, that wafts through your nose. Um, like, I think that McDonald's, like the smell that just emanates from a McDonald's is so intoxicating. Um, you know, whether it's fries or hash browns in the morning, um, it just really sticks to you. And it makes you think like... It makes you, it kind of reminded me that I was hungry a lot. You know, I think a lot of um, work that we do, like we're, I, as academics, is we're constantly working that I forget to eat. And I actually had this conversation with someone who was in disbelief that we forget to eat sometimes. And I think there was something, there was something about the structure or at least the routine of going to the mall um, three times a week that reminded me, like, oh, yeah, breakfast is important. And sometimes eating with people is important because a lot of times, again, as academics, you know, the work we do is very secluded, very isolated that we, we tend to eat by ourselves. And maybe there's something about, you know, having a routine with people in the morning kind of instills healthy eating habits and routines that maybe I was missing as an academic. And yet, as somebody who is interested in in health and healthy eating habits, let me read you something you wrote about uh, about those smells and about the the fry food. And then I'm going to ask you to comment. As a food scholar, you write, they were aware of the moral underpinnings of fried food. And here you're talking in reference to the mall walkers. The mall walkers and I share a love for rich foods, fried plantains, curry goat, Puluri. These foods are not considered healthy by medical or scientific standards. But when you're not accustomed to food security, does it matter? What does rich food really mean? I turn that to you. Yeah, you know, I think that's an interesting conversation. And it's because um, one time I took a colleague of mine to a Filipino restaurant and we had um, sisig, which is just fried pork. Um, and I love and it. You love sisig? Yeah, oh, it's great, God, right? Yes. <laughs> um, it really makes me unbelievably happy. Yeah, but in my opinion, you can't have too much of it because it's literally fried pork. Um, fried uh, pork cheek, um, tongue, like ear, it was like parts of the pork that were cheap um, to obtain historically, I guess. Um, and so when I took my colleague there, um, they had commented that they couldn't finish it because it was too rich. And I kind of do what they mean, right? It was, it's really greasy. It's really oily because it's just fried pork. And we know inherently with some that egg yolk and mayonnaise with some <laughs> egg yolk and mayonnaise. So yeah, with extra fats and protein. Um, and uh, we know inherently that you can't eat that every single day. Right. Uh, I think by medical standards, we should be avoiding oily foods as much as possible and to use sparingly. Um, but the thing is like culturally speaking, a lot of, cultures have fried foods. I think, you know, the Philippines has a lot of fried food and that, um, 
that's just instilled as part of a person's everyday diet. And so I think what's important to know is that, you know, I think as a health scholar, we think that we're supposed to eat certain amounts of food, right? You're supposed to eat vegetables and a certain amount of uh, proteins and and meat and all that stuff. Um, And I think that science has gotten to a point or health science has gotten to a point where it kind of ruins the cultural context of food by sort of perfecting how we're supposed to eat by giving us recommend dietary uh, recommendations to eat. And so I recommending eating with others either. Right. That's a good question. Um, it, it, it really depends. Uh, what do you, can you clarify what you well, mean by not eating with a others? A lot of what I take from, from your piece is the value of, of eating together, um, which I think so many of us during COVID really thought a lot about, what, just as, as ordinary people eating and also as scholars, that we, were, we just realized how much eating together matters culturally. But in, never have I ever read a nutritional standard that said, there's a real value, health value, in eating these foods together. It's one body, one meal, right? Mm, but okay. your your piece, to me, if I'm reading this as a as a health scholar or as a health policymaker, my takeaway is that there were really positive social, cultural, nutritional, whatever, all kinds of positive outcomes, all kinds of good things that happened. Because there was an eating together. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, no, you know, that's a really good point. And I, I, I never really thought of it that way. I think that um, eating together um, was a big part of being part of uh, a mall walker. Um, whether it was a banquet or picnic, people sat together and ate together to make sure people ate together. And I think that's important if I could share a little anecdote, because like there was there was a certain point where doing too much field work was kind of making me sick and they caught on to that. And so they made sure to, to feed me um, and tell me that this food is good for when you're sick. I remember I had a little tiny cough um, and they were giving me Moby because they're like, this is good for your cough. You need that. Or they would look at my plate and be like, Hey, there's not enough there. You should definitely eat more. Um, so yeah, eating together as what you're saying can have actual health and nutritional benefits. Um, I never really thought about, um, you know, prescribing people or thinking that eating is an, is an isolated individual thing. I like the word prescribed that you came, that you came up with there, that, that, that this is, we should be thinking perhaps about the nutritional advantages of, of eating together. But right now, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is proudly supported by Southern Peanut Growers, who are spreading the word about peanut sustainability. As the planet's resources are strained to meet the nutritional needs of its populations, many responsible chefs are doing their part by sourcing local and sustainably raised food. Many are surprised to learn that peanuts are one of the most sustainable plant-based proteins available. Southern Peanut Growers created the campaign Making Sustainable More Attainable in partnership with award-winning chef Stephen Satterfield. Together, they're bringing the sustainability message to chefs nationwide, whether it's conserving water, minimizing fertilizers, or achieving zero waste, 
peanuts are a logical choice for your next menu. Southern peanut growers represent farmers across Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama. For more information, visit www.peanutbutterlovers.com. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. And we're back. This is Gastronomica on Heritage Radio Network. I am Dan Bender, talking with Jason Edward Pagaduan about their new article, What is Fried is Gold? now available in issue 22.2 of Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. Jason, when we were talking before the break, we were talking about the value of eating together and the relationships that you formed with this community of mall walkers. But now I want to talk briefly about the McDonald's workers. You and the, your, the community really were walking in the mall before anything opened. And the mall not only seemed to tolerate it, it seemed to, to welcome it. But the McDonald's workers seemed to go an extra mile. When you and the mall workers gathered at McDonald's, what exactly did you all eat and drink? It wasn't all ordered at the counter, was it? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think people know that McDonald's, or at least the mall walkers know that they can't be eating egg McMuffins all the time. Um, a lot of times they would actually kind of um, will bring their own bread and cheese um, and just order um, or get some jam from the front of the counter. Uh, there were times where one of the mall walkers who's involved with a local church would bring in bread and just share it with everybody. Um, if I recall, a lot of ciabatta buns uh, from Costco um, because they were partnered with them to give out, I guess, one day old expired bread to everyone. So people were kind of eating their own um, meals. And really what, what they would order is like the senior coffees. Um, coffee was a big part or, or tea at least. Um, so they were kind of upset when senior coffees got a little bit more expensive and I was there to see them kind of complain about that. Um, so that was interesting. And the McDonald's workers, they seem on the, the edge of this solidarity, but very much part of it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially the long-term employees who've been there for a while, they they would just stop by the table sometimes just to say hi. I've I've seen them um, just like 
talk and invite each other to uh, different events. I also noticed after a while that they kind of knew what the orders were on what they would be ordering um, when we would line up and we'd, they'd be like, yeah, I'll just get the regular. And um, the employee would just punch it in and without any questions asked or any clarification. And so there seemed to be that sort of... Um, in other words, exactly what McDonald's is not supposed to do. <laughs> There's a kind of fascinating politics of, and it goes right back to what you're talking about begin, at the beginning, transforming architecture, transforming spaces, and in fact, maybe even transforming menus. Yeah. Um, I didn't, okay, like, for example, I didn't know you can just order McMuffin, like the bread itself, like the English muffin. Um, that was something that I learned that I, I didn't know they did, or that you can just like get jam with it and butter rather than getting a whole sandwich. Cause these are like off menu items. And that interested me, especially because I worked at a McDonald's when I was a teenager and I never really had like regulars in that way where I could just look at them and be like, I already know what to punch in. You're good. So that was really interesting to see. Um, yeah, and like sort of an apprehension to technology, right? Because you walk into a McDonald's now and you can see the self-serve kiosks. Um, a lot of people never use those. Uh, I, I thought that was really interesting um, to, to see, yeah. And did the mall walkers use those? And that's really interesting. I, did the mall walkers use those those kiosks or did they really want to, in, in effect, include the, the longtime McDonald's workers in their community? There's yeah, an I, you know, in my here, time. Right? Yeah, in, in my time, I've never actually seen them use it. I do notice that um, a lot of them paid with cash and not card. And I remember asking one person about this, and they just said that they were worried about hacking. Or another person told me they don't use their card because you don't see how much money you're actually spending in a day. Um, but also, and this is in line with, um, I think Stacy Torres's work. Um, having that interaction with uh, another human it's a, it's an added layer of interaction for somebody especially for people who are isolated and lonely um being able to go to say a, a mcdonald's which we would think of as really impersonal compared to like say uh, a diner um to just to have that added layer of interaction with somebody um yeah so i'm gonna read another quote that in, from your essay that really spoke to me. And I, I'm going to ask you then to comment on it, both as a member of this community, but also as a food scholar. So you write, we gossiped, we danced, we mourned, but mostly we ate. That's when I learned when my body was not my own. Tell us about that realization. Yeah, you know, and I actually just want to take the time to um, shout out that the the creativity that I was allowed to write into this journal. I think a big part of academic writing, especially in the social sciences, is doesn't really allow for that. So when I was given the opportunity to write this piece, um, I was I I was able to exercise just a lot of creativity. And so when I wrote that, um, originally, that's kind of what I wanted to call the article, but it was more of like um, a realization that 
when you're doing field work or when you're part of a community, your body, you and en- you like you you enter this space where your body is going to be taken care of by other people or not even taken care of, but maybe even surveyed by other people Um, that you're not an individual person, but you are a member of this like bigger body of people. And so when people notice that you're not eating enough or you're sick or you're, you can't keep up with exercising, um, the community will take care of you. Um, Especially because over time, I guess they started calling me like their son and they're introducing me to everyone as their son. Um, maybe because I was the youngest member, but um, it, it, it was really nice um, to, to, to have that, that level of care because you think in a, in a, in ethnography or in field work, you're supposed to be this fly on the wall. You're not supposed to interact with people or like, well, not interact with people. You're not supposed to get really, really close because then it'll like kind of, interfere with your ability to to see the bigger picture but in reality once you give yourself up to it you you realize that people genuinely do want to take care of you and you should allow yourself to be taken care of and you should be vulnerable in those spaces because it is only in being vulnerable that you can really build um meaningful relationships with people and in the end you come up with some really fascinating i think scholarly everyday life policy implications. I mean, to me, one of the big takeaways for me is we always teach health and nutrition is about a single person taking care of a single person's body, except when it comes to kids and older adults, in which case there are specific caregivers. But the story you're telling here is health and nutrition are not individual processes if done right. This is about bodies taking care of bodies as solidarity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an important piece, right? Um, I think that having a, you know, having a routine is important. I think having people who like to exercise with regularly and that you have fun with regularly is important because it allows you to keep coming back. Um, having a t-shirt, like something as symbolic as having a t-shirt is important because it helps you to like, remember that you are not in this individual person aging in a vacuum, but you are this person that is part of something a lot bigger and a part of this body of people that, um, just genuinely want to take care of you, right? Like it, it, it's hard because a lot of health just is focused so much on outcomes and not so much processes. And I like to think that this dissertation or just this piece is about the process of because communion community is it's a constant thing that's that's happening, right? When we think about older adults, we have to think about like what are what are things that we're constantly they're constantly doing to to um, you know fight things like isolation and loneliness, especially when your networks are shrinking. You know, so I think this piece is important because it shows that like. Networks can grow when you're older, right? It's not this like downhill thing where people just move on from their lives and their 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 friendship circles sink. But there's actually that the possibility that people can come together as they age. And so suddenly, that hash brown isn't necessarily the worst possible thing you can do to your own body. Tell me about this the the hash brown. Yeah, you know, I think that was so interesting because they had been meeting with 
they had been meeting for a long time. And so presumably they have been going to McDonald's for a really long time, especially if they have a lot of orders that are just ritualistic at this point. It's just like you go in and you they, they recognize, like the employee will recognize your face, give you already what you need. I So I think that this one time where this one particular member that I always sit with um, or the group I sit with, um, they bought a hash brown. Um and and I just remember because they told me like, what is this? I didn't even order this, and I thought to myself like, I was a little skeptical, right? Like, and and as I should be because I was like, you know what that is? <laughs> it's impossible for you to have gone to McDonald's for years and like, I guess not even know what a hash brown is. Like, I know you have grandkids. I'm you. you sh- I'm pretty sure you feed it. But anyway, um. I, yeah, I was really skeptical about this, but I think at the time, like I wasn't eating a lot. Um, cause I, sometimes I would just get an iced coffee and hang out with them. So like, you know, we'd been exercising for a couple hours now and I would just get an iced coffee because I just didn't feel like eating. And, you know, as with a lot of like people that are older than me in my life, like to take care of me and be like, you're an incredibly skinny dude. Cause like, I'm like a hundred 30 pounds, you know, and like a lot of people would say I'm really underweight. I I look really skinny. I get that comment all the time. And I sort of got that comment a lot um, when I was exercising. But, you know, I'm happy with my body. But this one specific instance, I guess they just wanted to feed me and um, I guess used the the accidental hash brown as a pretense to feed me. I guess, and I think that was one of the first times where that had actually happened. Because um, I think um, at that point, they had just been ordering the coffees. And so, like, I still don't think that hash brown incident was an accident. I really think that that was a intentional way to feed me, even if they're using it as a as a, uh, an accident, as a reason for it. Um but it, you yeah, described it's really putting the hash brown in your mouth and described the taste and how that stuck in your own memory. But as I read that description, I found myself thinking about the person who on accident had given you the hash brown to eat and how what you were eating, what you were putting in your own body was nutrition for them in a different kind of way. Yeah, that's that's a really beautiful way of putting it. You know, I think there's something to be said about taking care of other people. It genuinely feels good to be taking care of other people and to make people happy, especially through food. I think culturally speaking, um, food is a way to show care and intergenerational care. And that's sort of what I was going with in this piece is to show how um, even if I was just like a scholar, I wasn't just a PhD candidate or a graduate student in those spaces but as I was a member that's they they genuinely wanted to take care of and that's something I take take out of it you know I still get text messages and calls just because I haven't been able to go to the mall lately um I still get people to being like hey Jason like how are you um I hope you're doing well I hope you're taking care of yourself um because uh, my well-being is probably takes way more precedence to them than my actual dissertation, you know, and there's something sweet about that. So Jason Edward Pagaduan realized that what is fried can be care, love, solidarity, and gold. Thank you, Jason, for joining us. 
Listeners could read the full essay in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Join us in the coming weeks this summer season as we talk with more authors from our newest issue, Gastronomica 22.2. We'll be back on Sunday, July 10, talking to India Hayes on sustainable foodways and African-American food imaginaries. The Gastronomica podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.